It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Once upon a time, I guess it was about eight years ago now, Jim, you and I were talking about launching a podcast together, which was a fairly radical concept back in those days. Our first idea was to do a show called Change My Mind. We we thought we'd have different people on to argue points and see if they could change our minds about something we thought we were pretty confident in. Not a bad idea for a podcast, but then we moved on and we launched this one instead. How do we fix it? Right. Of course, the problem with that idea, Richard, was that it's impossible to change my mind. So we had to move on to a, a different approach. And how do we fix it is, I think, an evolution of that. We still like people who who challenge us, who challenge the conventional wisdom, who look at problems differently, and by looking at the problem differently, often come up with innovative solutions. In this episode, we have two guests who did just that. Jonathan Rausch and Alina Chan. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? The guest who changed my mind was Jonathan Rausch. I'm a bit of a viewpoint schizophrenic, Jim. There have been a bunch of guests who have challenged me or, or changed my mind on certain things. But the example I want to share is Alina Chan. We'll have more from her and about her later in the show. But, but tell us why you chose Jonathan Rausch. With his wonderful book, The Constitution of Knowledge, he didn't so much change some deep-seated bias or idea that I have, but he gave it an entirely new framework. You know, we all understand how the Constitution sets up different institutions and structures so that we can make our democracy work. We can't just have democracy of getting a bunch of people in a room and yelling at each other. But what Rausch does is he shows how similar institutions and traditions exist in other parts of our society that keep us honest about facts, and create these different ways of testing propositions to see if they're really true. So we started our interview with Jonathan on episode 312 from last year, um, asking him, what is the constitution of knowledge? How does he understand that phrase? That is the system that we in America and people who care about truth around the world rely on to keep us anchored to reality 
and to turn our disagreements into facts. And it is the only system known to mankind that can do those two things. Is this a network? Is it, I mean, just explain this a little bit more. So the best way I find to explain this is to just back up one step and, and talk about what the problem is that it's solving. Every society, large or small, needs to figure out whether certain things are true or false for public purposes. And historically, the way they've done that is that they divide into sects, each of which believing its own separate truth, and they go to war, or they appoint a priest or a prince or a politburo who oppresses everyone and says, here's what you have to believe. So they usually uh, wind up at war with each other or going down rabbit holes of false belief and ignorance and oppression reign. And that's the first 200,000 years of human history. And then what happened? About 350 years ago, around the same time that the ideas behind the U.S. Constitution were floated, similar ideas came up for knowledge, which is instead of having rulers, let's have rules. Let's say the only way you can really claim to know something is by running it through all these rules, all these other people who are going to have to check you. You're going to have to persuade them that you're right. Other people are going to try to persuade them that you're wrong. Only what comes out of that process, all those institutions, all those checks and balances, that's going to be knowledge. And that turns out to solve the same kind of problem that the U.S. Constitution does, which is taking a very diverse society and creating a system in which people can bargain, negotiate, reach some kinds of consensus about law on the one hand and truth on the other. So in that period in the 17th and 18th century, we had these these world-changing revolutions in terms of the, the scientific revolution and the idea that facts had to be based on some kind of, of test or empiricism. We had an economic revolution with the development of, of, of markets, and we had a political revolution with the modern ideas of democracy. We're all the beneficiaries of that. And do you feel like today maybe people don't appreciate it, some of those very systems and traditions and norms that helped establish all these wonderful things are now under attack. We got complacent in a word, Jim. The system worked so well for so long that we took it for granted. We developed this notion that if you ask Americans where knowledge comes from, where truth comes from, they're, they're more than likely to say the marketplace of ideas. And the notion there is that free speech, if you let it go, will just automatically produce truth because it'll go into this marketplace and the best ideas will prevail. Well, it turns out that's not how it happens. You need the free speech, but it's only the input, because if you leave people in an unstructured environment to believe whatever they feel like believing, they'll believe stuff that's fun to believe, that increases their status in their group or that flatters their ego. And the situation turns into QAnon. They've, they go into their rabbit holes and we're back where we started. So there are all kinds of rules that you need. Things like you have to check your statements and you have to do it in ways that work for anybody, not just people who agree with you. There are all kinds of institutions. These are everything from universities, academic journals, research institutes to newsrooms. I'm a journalist, like the newsroom that taught me. You have to check everything. It has to be edited. You sure it's right, then it's going to be checked by other journalists. The law is another big one. Donald Trump found out that when he took spurious claims to court, they got thrown out because they weren't factual. Courts find facts. And the fourth big pillar, what I call the reality-based community, is government, which also has to be fact-based. And that's like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the weather report that Donald Trump tried to change. So you need all of that stuff. You need to understand it's there. You need to maintain it and understand it and especially defend it when it comes under attack as it is right now. 
And we're also dealing now with information warfare, which are attacks on knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. People have understood from time immemorial since Plato's day that you can manipulate the social and media environment for political gain, confuse people about what to believe or shame them so that they think it's wrong to believe something that may be true. And by manipulating people in that way, you can gain a lot of power. So we've hit a period when we're seeing major outbreaks of two different kinds of social manipulation. One is primarily from the right. That's disinformation, conspiracy theories, what's called the fire hose of falsehood. That's where you put out so many lies, half-truths, and conspiracy theories so fast that the media can't keep up with them, refuting them, and the public doesn't know what to believe anymore, or who to believe. And then the other is the use of social coercion. That's an old tactic, but it's so much easier now with social media. So the left was the first to pick up on the use of what's now called canceling social coercion using these new tools. And the right was the first to pick up on the use of Russian-style disinformation. That's, you know, Steve Bannon, a advisor to Trump, as he put it, flood the zone with shit. Sorry, uh, I guess it's an R-rated podcast now. <laughs> but it's, it's just important to emphasize that these are just tools. They're not ideological. They can be used by the left, the right, Nazis, Leninists, Putin, Trump, cancelers, CRT. Anybody can use them. Another factor, you mentioned the big debate over critical race theory. It seems like that's part of a trend that we are seeing on both the right and the left to see ourselves primarily as parts of groups, as, as tribe. But you cite some really interesting research that once you start seeing yourself as primarily as this member of a tribe opposed to other tribes, it really affects your ability to think clearly and rationally. Yeah, you get into what I call zombie science. And that's where if all you're talking to are people who agree with you, then you feel like you're putting your beliefs out for checking and, and disconfirmation. But everyone you talk to thinks the same thing you do, and we can't see our own biases. Uh, that's been well established. We don't even think we have bias. We all think the other person's biased, but not us. So the only way this works is you have to have a lot of diverse viewpoints, and then you have to require people to do the last thing they feel like doing, which is submit their own viewpoints to people with very different viewpoints, often antagonistic viewpoints. That's where knowledge comes from. People will go to great lengths to avoid that. One study found they'd rather have root canal work than encounter political views they, they disagree with. I love this simple sentence in the Constitution of Knowledge, which says, acquiring knowledge is a conversation, not a destination. This is the great invention of the Constitution of Knowledge. Maybe I'm biased, but I claim that the constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community that it sets up, this global network of people hunting for each other's errors is far and away the greatest human technology ever invented. It took us from tribes of small groups that advanced knowledge almost zero in 200,000 years to analyzing the COVID-19 genome in, in days, organizing scientists, um, researchers, almost overnight to do this work. So the key to this transformational technology is that everyone can enter a global conversation with anyone about an idea, 
I can float a hypothesis in an article I write, and someone who's living in Ethiopia, uh, speaks an entirely different language, can write a counterpoint. If I do research, people around the world with other views can, can weigh in. Um, this is the only way to make knowledge that can create a global conversation of people looking for truth and more especially looking for error because that's really what we're doing. We're all hunting for each other's mistakes and that's where truth comes from. And you said that the, the system has to be depersonalized and decentralized and rules-based. Can you explain how that works in journalism, science, and other fields? Well, that's really the key to the whole enterprise. Anybody can check a statement that they believe or propound by saying, uh, I heard it from God, or I feel it in my gut, or it ought to be true, or my friend told me, or it's what we as a group believe. Uh, that's just not going to get you to truth because you won't spot your errors. So it turns out that as with the US Constitution, you need checks and balances. You need institutions and structures that incentivize people to behave in certain ways. So in the US Constitution, for example, um, if you want to make a law and use state power, you're going to have to persuade members of Congress in two chambers to pass it, a president to sign it, courts to uphold it, factions to support it. It's going to change along the way because those other people and organizations will all have a say. And that's the whole point of the system. It's to bring all of those minds and all of those factions to bear. So the result at the end of the day may not be exactly what any of us started with, will be acceptable to society. So constitutional knowledge, exact same thing. It's, it's not just a figure of speech. It's not just a metaphor. It's really a social system doing the same thing. And it says, you know, if Richard or Jim want to make knowledge, they can't just say it. They can't just believe it. They're going to have to submit it to this global network of people and institutions that are checking. They're going to have to know the rules for that. Like you're going to have to know how to write an academic article, if that's what you're specially. Show you know what you're doing. Show you're familiar with the field. Make an evidence-based argument using experiments that are replicable or using arguments that will work no matter what culture you come from. And then other people are going to have at you. And it can take 10 or 20 years to move through this system. Jonathan Rausch speaking to us on episode 312. You can hear the full interview by going back and listening to that earlier episode. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Richard, your choice of Alina Chan follows on nicely from Jonathan Rauch's argument on the constitution of knowledge because she is focused on the question of are we really doing an honest job of assessing where COVID came from? Are we really enabling the kind of free and open debate that we ought to be having in the midst of a terrible pandemic. Right. We did two episodes late last year with Alina on the mystery over the true origins of COVID. Where did it come from? Was it caused by a lab leak in Wuhan, China, or did the SARS-CoV-2 virus emerge from an animal in nature? Alina Chan is a young molecular scientist who raised the possibility that the virus could have escaped from the lab in Wuhan. Her early research was dismissed by some leading scientists and mainstream media journalists. Some called her work and those of others who were asking this question a conspiracy theory. But Chan wasn't advancing a wild theory. Instead, she was really asking crucial questions that had been raised all too rarely by other scientists. We really need to know the true origins of this pandemic if we're to be successful in heading off the next one. And what was really striking about this interview, Jim, was that I'd kind of swallowed the consensus rhetoric that uh, people who were suggesting that uh, this could have been the result of a lab leak were right-wing Trumpers and that they hadn't really seriously considered the issue. Um, maybe I was duped a little bit by the mainstream thinking and what you did by introducing us to Alina Chan and, and doing these interviews uh, for our podcast really did change my mind. And I believe that uh, her focus on this was, was really helped advance knowledge. Alina is the co-author of the book Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Here's part of our interview that aired in full on episodes 329 and 330 of How Do We Fix It? So there are two scenarios. There's natural origins and the possibility of a lab leak. And you say it's not clear still what the cause was, whether it's one or the other, right? Yes. So to this day, no definitive evidence, so no smoking gun for any scenario. There's just a lot of smoke, a lot of circumstantial evidence for both natural as well as lab origin. So there's no denying it that one of the earliest clusters of COVID cases in Wuhan was linked to a seafood market. So we know that there was some small number of wild animals sold there, uh, so we have to investigate. The question is, why haven't they been investigated? Why have the investigations in China turned up all empty despite testing tens of thousands of animal samples? Why did they shut down the farms in South China that supplied these Wuhan markets without testing them? And similarly, for the lab origin scenario, there's a whole ton of circumstantial evidence, right? So we know that the lab there was collecting tens of thousands of samples from high-risk animals and humans from across eight countries. And so they were taking these viruses, growing them, synthesizing them, cloning them, making genetic modifications in them. And it's very reasonable to think that it could have possibly led to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan city. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology was one of the world's top locations, maybe the top location for collecting this enormous range of, of viruses from Asia that might be suspected as, as having pathogenic possibility. 
And yet a lot of people early on said, oh, come on, it's impossible for something to leak out of the Wuhan lab. It's very high tech. It's very secure. It's biosafety level four. Uh, can you explain what that means and why those people might have been exaggerating the level of safety? So one point to bring up is that the first SARS virus, when it was studied in laboratories around the world, it actually escaped from a top biosafety, biosecurity lab, a BSL-4 lab once, so that we know of. This was back in 2003? Yes, almost two decades ago now. So uh, it was a, a BSL-4 lab in Taiwan where a researcher was working with a patient sample of SARS virus. And due to human error, so nothing to do with the infrastructure or the protocols, but due to human error, he got infected and he went on an international conference. So he flew to Singapore and then he came back again on an international flight. And fortunately, he only developed symptoms after he landed back in Taiwan. So if the trip had been just one day off and he developed symptoms while on the plane or at the conference, he would have given it to how many, like dozens possibly of researchers and, and participants who have all flown back to each of their countries. And there are different levels of biosafety at Wuhan and other research labs? Biosafety level four, BSL-4 is the highest level. Uh, but we know that the research in Wuhan, where they were handling SARS-like viruses, was only done at BSL-2 and 3. So at, especially at BSL-2, if you're working with these live recombinant viruses uh, collected from animals and humans even, this is not appropriate for an airborne virus. If you work with hundreds of these, one day you might get very unlucky. And the biosafety level two, people often say, is about what you would experience in your dentist's office? In some ways it's safer, and in some ways it's less safe than the dental office. So you sometimes only have to wear a mask. So if, if someone decides not to wear a mask, it's no big deal. Uh, so your lowest level of protection could literally just be gloves. So you would be protected from SARS-like viruses with gloves. What are some of the ways that a pathogen can leak out of a lab? Does this sort of thing happen often? Yes, yeah, so lab escapes are not infrequent and they are not unexpected, especially as we scale up to hundreds of different laboratories around the world, all working with these pathogens or collecting new pathogens. So sometimes it's just about human error. And even even machines make mistakes, right? Like when you when you have your printer, your fax machine, and it just craps out, <laughs> refuses to do anything. Like even, even machines make mistakes. So humans, we make mistakes too. No matter how well-trained you are, you might have a bad day or you might forget to do one thing. So in previous cases of lab escape pathogens. For example, there was even one in 2019, just as COVID was unfolding as well, is that a vaccine factory used expired disinfectant. So they didn't realize that the disinfectant they were using was expired. And as a result, these bacterial spores blew all over the city and ultimately infected thousands of people. Not only were they handling all these viruses, but some of the research might have involved modifying certain viruses in various ways that, that had the potential of maybe making them more infectious to human cells. Can you explain how that works? So there are a lot of researchers, even today, who are still conducting the type of research where you collect many novel specimens from nature, from, from caves, from the wildlife trade, even from people living in rural, rural areas who tend to be exposed to these novel pathogens, and you bring them back to the lab. And to understand how these novel viruses work and to estimate how much of a risk 
they are to uh, spilling over into humans and causing outbreaks, you, you kind of need to take them apart or to grow them up in the lab and, and study them in different cell and animal models to see, can it make the cells sick or can it make the animal sick? So in situations when you cannot grow a virus in the lab, when you cannot isolate and culture it in the lab, then you might want to clone parts of it into other viruses that you can grow in the lab. So there's this practice of making recombinant viruses. And in some cases, you might accidentally create a pathogen that has the potential to cause a pandemic. So I'd say that this is extremely rare. And again, just emphasize that the scientists doing this work, they're not doing this recklessly. They're not doing this with bad intentions. They literally want to understand how novel pathogens might be a threat to human beings. And so the question that we have today is how do we make that work more transparent? So how do we make sure that public stakeholders are aware of what type of research is happening in their backyard? How do we make sure that we can detect outbreaks or lab escapes as quickly as possible? How can we better estimate the risk of lab escapes and to put in safety measures that can dramatically reduce those risks? And if safety steps aren't properly taken, this work can be extremely dangerous. Yes. A, an unmodified virus might have leaked in one of several ways or a virus that had been modified to be more and become more infectious might have leaked. But in China, the official explanation is still that the virus emerged in that wet market uh, from some kind of uh, uh, animal host. Is that still a plausible explanation? Yes. So a natural origin of SARS-CoV-2 is still on the table. It's still plausible. It deserves to be properly investigated. Why is it important for us to know what the source of coronavirus is? So there are three reasons for this. One is to develop an informed strategy to prevent future pandemics. The second reason is about setting a precedent. So we need to show that we can investigate novel outbreaks and that we can hold people accountable. We need to show that we are able to investigate so that we can protect against massive loss of life. And the last reason is about a human resolution. So we've all been impacted in some way by this pandemic. And a lot of people who have lost people or, or you know, suffered greatly, have long COVID or very severe COVID, like one, one of the top questions for them is why is this happening? And, and how did this happen? So, so people want answers. It's not something we can just sleep on it and forget about it, like pretend this pandemic never happened and <laughs> wait for the next one to happen. Alina Chan speaking with us late last year on how do we fix it. As she said, we still don't have a definitive answer about the causes of COVID-19. A full, open and honest investigation was, was never actually done. I mean, China's dictatorship simply won't allow questions about this to be to be fully and honestly investigated. And sadly, and somewhat shockingly, our own public health establishment, the National Institutes of Health and 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 the rest, have also resisted really opening their books. They've dragged their feet and obfuscated at every step of this discussion and, and continue to do so. So this debate about the origins of COVID is really a good example of, of what Jonathan Rausch is talking about in our interview, which is the need for 
uh, traditions of openness, willingness to ask hard questions, willingness of scientists and journalists and others to really argue and, and muster their best arguments, their best facts. And none of that happened here. It got politicized. These institutions of the scientific method and open debate and inquiry, it's not enough to just pay lip service to them. They really do need to be defended. They need to be reaffirmed every day. Otherwise, they go away. And then what winds up happening is the people who control the narrative are those with the most power. And following on from what you said about controlling the narrative, I have a recommendation. Richard, I know what your recommendation is, and I can't wait to read this book, so fire away. Yeah, I've been reading Broken News by the political journalist Chris Steyerwalt, who writes for The Dispatch. Uh, the new book is a crisp, passionate, well-judged, and, and really timely book about how the over-politicized media rage machine divides us all. Um, reporters in newsrooms are actually incentivized to write stories that are full of emotion and anger because those reports often get the most clicks from readers or listeners. And this emphasis on anger and rage, Steyerwalt argues, and I, I agree with him, has polluted journalism. And he has some very striking examples of how this is done. This book, Broken News, is is really readable. <laughs> and Starwalt is just such a, a open-hearted, sensible figure. People remember he was a longtime journalist on Fox News who ultimately got fired from Fox in the aftermath of the the election result coverage when the the network called the state of Arizona for Joe Biden yeah, sooner he, than he, some other networks. Yeah, he dared to tell the listeners what they really didn't want to hear and, and, and was they, fired they, for that. They, they fought Great. back. I would also recommend he does a wonderful podcast with Eliana Johnson, who's the editor of the Free Beacon, called Ink Stained Wretches. If you're a real news junkie like me, it's super inside baseball on uh, the news business. It's very funny, very entertaining. So two recommendations for the price of one. We're offering value again for our listeners. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, How Do We Fix It? is a production of Davies Content. Uh, we are podcast consultants, and you can find out more about what we do at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.